0: Hello. Hey, John.
1: When the pandemic is over, um, everyone was saying, oh, isn't it nice to be back to normal? But it's not quite normal, and it never will be. You also have an older set of American values that date back to the frontier period. You have the, the attitudes that were much more common before we became the wealthy society we are now. Attitudes that focus on hard work and individualism not as a way to amass vast amounts of wealth but amount the best ways to get by with minimal interference either to or from other people. And I find that speaking to Americans on that basis of that colonial, that frontier set of values communicates very well to them. If you're tired of arguing with
0: strangers on the internet, try talking with one of them in real
1: life. Welcome to Back in America, the podcast.
0: I'm Stan Bertolo, and this is Back in America. Today I'm speaking with John Michael Gere or JMG as he likes to be called, a widely respected author and blogger in the field of nature, spirituality, and the future of industrial society. He is the author of more than 50 books and of his blog, Ecosophia. He lives in Rhode Island with his wife Sarah. John, a look at your Wikipedia page made me realize that you are a pretty complex person the most striking aspect of your life is probably that you are a druid, and being French and a reader of Asterix discovering that dreads made their way from Europe to the US was a surprise and I want to learn more about it. The reason for my reaching out to you however, John is that you are one of the leading minds in the US behind the concept of soci- societal collapse. You started... Blogging on this topic back in 2006. In 2016, you wrote Dark Age America, Climate Change, Cultural Collapse, and the Hard Future Ahead. Since then, you published about eight books and countless articles on collapse. Collapse means that fossil fuel based civilization cannot sustain itself and will fail. As our world is going through unprecedented pandemic and is bracing itself for what might also be an unprecedented recession, I am delighted to have the chance to get your views on this situation. Welcome to Back in America, John.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on.
0: Do you want to add anything to this uh, introduction? Um,
1: not in particular. It seems It seems relatively accurate, I mean, better than many podcasters do, so you're, you're kind of ahead of the curve.
0: <laughs> Thank you for saying that. So let me start. Uh, why Dreadism? Or oh, I'm not sure how you call the religion or the philosophy of the Dreads?
1: If you ask a question... Three Druids, you will get at least five answers. But um, it's either Druidism or it's Druidry. I prefer Druidry because it's less of an ism, less of an ideology, more of a craft like carpentry or pottery. Um, but you can use either label. You mentioned you mentioned in the intro that it's rather surprise you to find um, that the, the Druids had somehow made their way across the Atlantic. In fact, um, the first known Druid organization in the, in the United States, um, the Society of Ancient Druids, was founded in 1798 in upstate New York. And so there's been a druid presence here for a long time. Basically, there is there, there's a, certain, a certain number of people who naturally find that they come closest to the spiritual realm through nature. And druidry is one of the, one of the frameworks, one of the ways of approaching that kind of nature-based spirituality. It's certainly one that, that appealed to me as soon as I encountered it. And um, you know one thing led to another.
0: Okay, good. Well, I, and I'm sure we are going to touch back on the spiritual aspect of things. But uh, in order, maybe, for our listener to better understand who you are as a person, take me back to what it was like to be a 10 year old John Michael Gear. Where were you living? What were your surroundings? Okay,
1: a- age of 10, I was living in the in the suburbs south of Seattle in an area. Let's see that was that was actually the year we moved from um from one Seattle suburb to a different Seattle suburb but they're basically interchangeable typical american suburbia of the uh, beginning of the 1970s, before the before the the, gas, the gasoline price shock, before the first oil crisis, um, think two large cars parked in every in in, in everybody's driveway, um, split-level homes, um, lots of consumer stuff running around all over the place. Um, it was incredibly dull. <laughs> One of the things about suburbia that that the the salesmen of the real estate projects never get around to mentioning is that it has all the disadvantages of urban life and of rural life, and neither of the advantages of either so um yeah so i I grew up in a typical boring American suburban life um being given the, the extremely low quality education that American public schools provide. I, I'm sure you're aware that um an American high school graduate typically has less knowledge than probably some uh, you know child in in a French school who is in like the third or fourth grade. <laughs> and so um one of the reasons that I ended up getting into various um, esoteric and abstruse topics such as druidry, such as the study of collapse, was simply that the, the world that was being presented to me by the media, by my teachers, by my parents, by the entire surrounding society was so one-dimensional and so obviously fake that it, it inspired a certain passion for looking past the obvious answers and saying, okay, what's actually going on here?
0: Hmm. What were your parents doing at the time?
1: Um, both my parents were school teachers.
0: Oh, okay, all right. So you were living in an intellectual
1: household. Well, to to, to a certain extent, um, you you have to remember. I don't know whether this is true in Europe at all. i not. I haven't lived in Europe, but in America, school teachers are right at the very at the bottom of the middle class. It's, it was at that time, certainly, the typical career when um, you have a family, a working class family, one of the kids has some intellectual talent, they go off to college, they end up with a teaching certificate, uh, a, a teaching degree, and they go to work in the public schools. Hmm. Um, and so, both, both, both of my parents were were well educated by the by american standards um both of them had intellectual interests they read things and so on but um i did not get a lot of my intellectual um you know a lot of my intellectual grounding did not come from my parents (laughs) most of it came from the public library the internet wasn't around yet Mm -hmm. what
0: what keeps you busy and what keeps you or what makes you happy
1: Oh, what keeps me busy is, is largely writing. Um, I am a self-employed author, and I also simply love to write. And so I write a lot. I write blog posts. I write um, novels. I write uh, various kinds of nonfiction works. Um, I write astrological forecasts. I, you know, I, I'm involved. I, do, I write a lot of things. And so that is much of what keeps me busy. I am um, somewhat solitary by nature. I don't do a lot of socializing this kind of stuff. I'm not the kind of person who's out. Uh, the, I, I, let's just say I was not greatly inconvenienced by the shutdown that we that we have here in the U.S. just now with the coronavirus thing. So, so yes. So there's what there's what keeps me busy. Well, what makes me happy really is um, I enjoy my work. I love to write. I love to communicate. Um, I. I very much enjoy interacting with nature, preferably, you know, without too many other human beings in the way. And so, generally, my, my life—my life is pretty much what I wanted to be. So,
0: or how do spirituality and ecology come together for you?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, with a, you ask, a, you ask, that, you're asking that of a druid, of course. And so, one of the ways that um, that's very much the case is that. I see. I experience spiritual realities most closely through the phenomenon of nature, and so ecology fills much the same role in in my thought that, say, um, the, the theology of Thomas Aquinas would fill in the thought of, of, a, of a devout Roman Catholic. Simply, the, the the basic structure of the structures of nature are the structures of spirit from a Druid point of view. And so, when I was back when I was in university i did took to take a, quite a number of classes on ecology on environmental sciences, and all of those have really helped shape my view of of what the spiritual world is like and how we interact with it it's, i don't think it' would be going too far to say that one of the great needs we have right now is for an understanding of spiritual ecology, an understanding of how we relate to the transcendent world to the spiritual world as an ecological relationship, as something that, that frames our lives the way that, that physical ecology does.
0: Hmm. And the hermetics or alchemists uh, said that mm-hmm. what is above is the same as what is down. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes. What is above is that which is above. Is is that which is below, and that which is below is is that which is above? To perform the miracles, the one thing. Yes, I do have the the emerald tablet by heart. <laughs> as I said, I got I got very bored as a child and got into a lot of weird things.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Were you raised uh, a Protestant?
1: Like me? No, I, w- I was raised absolutely nothing at all. Oh, um, okay. Back when I was a kid, the Pacific Northwest was the least church-going part of the United States. Nowadays, New England. But, um, but yeah, I mean, there was like one family on our block that went to church regularly. And everyone thought they were kind of weird. Yeah. Oh No. So. So. Yeah. So I grew. I grew up with very little contact with, um, with mainstream religion, and when I did end up having contact with it, I was. I was baffled. It made no sense to me. How come? I hope I will not give offense either to you or any of my neighbors or any of our listeners to mention that I find the basic claims made by Christianity about, um, say, how the world came into being and um, the the history of the world from creation in 4004 BC until the present and the events around the life of Jesus of Nazareth and so on completely implausible. I you know I don't think the world was created in seven days. I don't think a flood you know flooded the entire world, you know, you know so that Mount Everest was underwater. I don't believe that a man rose from the dead.
0: Yeah, well, we can, don't you think we can see that as a as a parable?
1: Of course, but if you see that as a parable, then other parables, you know, then it's just a parable. And other parables are going to are will be as at least as interesting, inspiring, and so on. And that was I mean, if you want parables, there are lots of parables around. And I prefer the parables that are taught by nature. Unfortunately, a lot of certainly a lot of American Protestant Christians do not believe that it's a parable. They are convinced that not only did Jesus rise from the dead, if a film crew had been there, they could have filmed the whole thing. <laughs>
0: So now, uh, and
1: you know, I, I I appreciate I appreciate their faith. I you know, I, there there's a certain there's a certain grandeur in believing something that seems so impl- impl- implausible. But I can't make I cannot make myself believe that that happened. And since if that didn't happen, then you know, if it's just a parable, there are other parables. Go on.
0: Okay. Now I wanted to switch to the elephant in the room. Um, At the COVID nineteen pandemic change anything
1: about your world vision? Um, it, it's actually, I, I was actually rather pleased to watch the response to it, at least here in this country. Um, of course, there's been a certain amount of stupidity, a certain number of people running around like chickens with their heads cut off. and it, it, that's, that's basic human normal. Um, there's a little rhyme that one of my friends used to like to chant. When in danger and in doubt, run in circles, scream and shout. And you have a certain amount of that. But by and large, an enormous number of people have dealt with this this problem much more calmly, much more effectively than I ever expected. And it is giving a lot of people a chance to stop and go, oh, so there's a point to having a little extra food and then, well, toilet tissue, for example, <laughs> stashed away. There's a point to making some preparations. The world will not necessarily behave itself We we can have things go wrong on this kind of scale. And so I think it's a real wake-up call. I have certainly seen a lot of people, on the one hand, people who were going, oh, come on, nothing like that can happen. you know, There, there can't be an actual decline, an actual collapse, who are going, oops, I was wrong. And of course, those, those people who have been, who've been preparing all along for things like that are going, okay, now do you understand? And getting a fairly good response. So I think all in all, it, it will turn out to be um, obviously, the, the, the people the people who die of it or become very ill, it's very unfortunate. But, you know, people die of a lot of things. We all die of something. And for society as a whole, I think here in the U.S., at least, it seems to be having a very salutary effect.
0: In the U.S., you've got the survivalist and you've mm-hmm. got people that are more inclined to look at um you know, the next stage as being resilience and and building resilient community. Which uh,
1: side do you see yourself in? Um, Neither. Okay. Uh, um, So basically, on the one hand, you have the survivalists who are convinced. The survivalists, I I tend to think of them as the ones whose idea of preparing involves lots of firearms. Uh Uh-huh. And holding up in the woods and blazing away at, at advancing enemies, it's you know it's basically it's a video game come to life that's playing in their minds. And a lot of the people on the resilient end of things, um, they have this whole idea of building communities, typically from scratch or taking individual towns and so on and getting everyone to follow their lead. That's not happening. Um, I don't know if if you're at all familiar with the the whole transition towns movement, yes. which was such a big thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, a decade ago. Um, it's, dead, it's been dead in the water here for, so, for several years because the transition town people can all get all fired up and excited and interesting, but nobody else cares. And so their plan of trying to get entire communities to restructure themselves along a resilient fashion has gone nowhere. My approach is kind of in the middle and it's much more individually based. My approach is that the thing that will help most, as we're seeing right now, is that if individuals are personally resilient, personally prepared, they've stashed some stuff, they've developed some skills, they know what we're facing, they can provide an anchor of stability and sanity in a difficult time. And as we're seeing right now, a lot of people who were going, oh, come on, that's completely unnecessary, are changing their mind in a hurry. And if they know people who who have done some preparations, who have... um, Who have made some plans? Who have who have basically shaped their future, knowing that we cannot count on the endless onward and upward fantasy of the modern media? Um, they're going okay now. How do you do that again? So it it becomes a matter of working from working from the ground up, working not with whole communities, and certainly not you know holding yourself up in a cabin in the woods, but simply being in your community, um, acting in a constructive and sane fashion, making the. Per- letting people know, helping them change to more resilient lifestyles as the need arises. Since I argue we are not facing a sudden collapse, we are facing a long descent, we are facing a long, ragged decline Mm -hmm. that will unfold over several centuries, that individually-based approach strikes me as far and away the most useful. So
0: I hear you say individual-based approach, and I also hear you say that You need to help people switch, you know, their mindset and their skill to become more resilient. So would you agree with me that you cannot survive alone? That you need a group of people to to be around you, to be with you, you need trust, or... Well, it
1: de- it depends. It depends again on what we're t- what we're talking about. If you're thinking in terms of a sudden collapse situation, and so many people do, they think you know the, the lights will go off, the food will, the stores will run out of food, and we're all plunged into chaos. And, and you know that's what people are thinking of when they're thinking about well, we need a group, we've got to gather people around. I don't see that happening. What I see is things like we're going through right now, where it gets bad for oil and then it gets somewhat better. There's this kind of crisis, there's that kind of crisis, mm-hmm. this place gets hit, that place over there gets hit. But it's a long, ragged process. You don't necessarily need a group because we all interact with people all the time. Right. Well, most of us do. I mean, there are some hermits, but most of us are constantly interacting with people. We know people, we talk to people, we, we you know say hi to our neighbors, and those are the informal connections that really matter because the way that communities will become resilient it's not because a handful of intellectual activists decide to make them resilient. It's going to happen because individual people and in families, um, neighborhoods, simply notice that this works and that doesn't. Right. You know, that um, you know the the, sli- the slightly kooky neighbor who everyone thought was a little strange for always having you know a month's supply of food is doing just fine, even though the stores are out of this, 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 and this. And maybe we should do some of that. And um, now, what was that recipe for baking bread again? It's that kind of that kind of evolutionary process, not in, not imposed from without, but evolved from within. That, to my mind, is is what we need for the long descent.
0: Mm-hmm. As a as a European and as a French, I find it very interesting um, your vision of the future. And the word that struck me was independent, you know, individual. And and to me, those are American value, right? To be independent, oh, yes. to cherish freedom, to cherish your private property. Uh, and, you know, I had a hard time putting that in perspective with the time to come. You know, that even that slow collapse, uh, which in Europe means that people will need to be more uh, resilient, with smaller community helping each other, and so you know, I'm sure you are uh, familiar with the, all the movement around uh, what is called effondrement in French, which is like collapse in English. Which you know, the view is radically different, right? Can can you speak about that? Yeah,
1: um, I, I have not really followed the French movement that much, mostly because um, you know, not my country, and conditions are very different. Europe is not North America. Um, you know, and one of the this is one of the things that both Europeans and North Americans sometimes forget. In the United States, you know, we're going to be dealing with independence and with that sort of independent minded thing because that's hardwired into our culture. Everybody, basically everybody clings to that. And trying to convince people to give it up is not going to get anywhere. So if that's you know that's what we have to work with. Obviously, in many European countries, you have a more a more communal attitude. You have a more, um, a more locally based neighborhood based kind of approach to society. Things are, there are those connections that are much more closer. There are more, um, more bonds between people in specific areas and so on. And so you've got that to work with and that's what you should be working with. You work with what you have. Mm -hmm. Um, to some extent there's, there's a continuum here on, on, on this continent because Here, you know, here in the east, um, up against the Atlantic Ocean, the neighborhoods are more of there's there's much more of a neighborhood spirit. People work together to a greater extent than elsewhere in America. Go out west, and it's every man for himself. And so, and so here again, one of the basic principles here is that there is no one solution. There is no one way to deal with kind of, co- of complex decline we're facing. And so it's very much a matter where localization also needs to include localizing how we, how we go about preparing and how we go about dealing. Mm-hmm.
0: Back, to, back to what we are experiencing at the moment with the pandemic. L- looking around me, I feel that people might not be been coming to term with the recession looming. Mm-hmm. As we are talking about opening the economy again, uh, going back to normal, I think that we are maybe avoiding the most important question, which is you know, how we ended up where we are today. What do mm-hmm. you think?
1: Oh, there's, there's, there's a huge amount of wisdom past the graveyard going on, a huge amount of um, people blustering and saying things, not because they know they're true or even because they believe them, because they want them to be true. Um, I don't know that we will ever quite get back to, quote, normal, unquote. Um, certainly... One of, the, one, of the, one of the effects of the pandemic is that the various arguments being made against um, open borders, against the free flow of people across international borders and so on, those have picked up a great deal of additional strength and support, at least here in the United States, and I suspect in a number of other countries as well. Um, the fact that this pandemic was able to spread so quickly was in large part because we, you know, our borders are, the borders of nations these days are very permeable. And so equally, the fact that the disruptions in China proceeded to have an economic knock-on effect around the planet, um, that has given a lot of encouragement to people who want to see um, less of a global economy and more economic relocalization. Also, there there have been some shifts in consciousness, I think, some shifts in ideas and thoughts, and we'll see how that plays out. But I think one of the things we'll want to get used to as the long descent continues is... Crises and then back to normal, but not quite. So, for example, um, there will be—I mean, the, the stock market—stock markets, of course, plunge worldwide. So they they climb back up somewhat. Um, there will be enterprises that were not really economically viable at all, and they will—some of those will go away and never come back. And. Other things that have more economic viability will probably get um, you know, a larger share of investment money. So you'll have these sort of shock mediated transformations. And everyone will say, Oh, isn't it you know when when the when the pandemic is over? Um, everyone will be saying, Oh, isn't it nice to be back to normal? But it's not quite normal and it never will be. There there will be changes, there will be shifts. And will there be a long lasting recession coming out of this? I don't know. Um, I know that several countries in the world, certainly mine among them, are <laughs> running, running the, the um, electronic equivalent of printing presses day and night, churning out free money to flood the economy with. Mm-hmm. And we'll get to see whether that works or not. It's an interesting experiment. Do
0: mm-hmm. you see it as a real soul for the things to come? Um,
1: yeah, basically. Uh, or just, or if you will, it's, a, it's the second round um, we here, here in the U.S., of course, we had quite the shock when the real estate market collapsed in 2008-2009. There was a lot of economic trouble. I, I know people who were um, in the, up to their eyeballs speculating in real estate who ended up bankrupt. They lost their homes. They lost all kinds of stuff. Now we have another shock. Um, another five, ten years down the line, there will doubtless be a, yet another one. Um, and each one changes things. And each one changes things that will never be the same.
0: Interesting. Are you a proponent of uh, degrowth?
1: Um, if we could get it, yes. Um, I think the problem is that the idea of growth is so hardwired into the, the economic thought of our time, and that's, it's absurd. But you know, I think it was Kenneth Bolton who used to say, "The only people who believe in perpetual growth on a finite planet are madmen and economists." Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, we have too many of both in, in positions of power these days. But in fact, we we need economic contraction. There's a lot of economic activity that is not productive of anything good, of anything useful, and that is, that just serves to churn money and, um, you know, line people's pockets. So there will be contraction. I doubt any of it will be planned. I doubt much of it will be not admitted. And there will be very, all kinds of gimmickry come up with to pretend that the economy is expanding while it is contracting in a healthy fashion. But we'll see how that works out.
0: Hard work, individualism, freedom, private property, capitalism, production and consumption as being the engine of growth, I mean, all that Mm -hmm. seems to be in total opposition with a more sustainable society or preparing to a smoother long descent, as you you call Mm -hmm.
1: it. It, It's it's actually quite easy um, because the values that you've mentioned actually break apart very nicely into two groups. There's um, what we can call um, consumer values. The idea of production, consumption, growth, um, the wallowing in, in absurd extravagance, all that kind of stuff. But you also have an older set of American values that date back to uh, to the frontier period, where, I mean, the, you have sayings like the old um, "use it up, wear it out, make it do, or do without." You have the the attitudes that. Were much more common before we became a wealthy, the wealthy society we are now. Attitudes that focus on hard work and individualism, not as a way to amass vast amounts of wealth, but amount best ways to get by without with minimal interference, either to or from other people. And I find that speaking to Americans on that basis of that second that 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 colonial that frontier set of values. Communicates very well to them. It also helps that um, the people who are predicting endless growth and so on are so constantly wrong. I mean, there's there's a running joke these days. What do you what, what do you call an economist who opens his mouth? And the answer is, of course, wrong. <laughs> and so, it, and it's true enough these days that I, I have. I mean, I started out just just blogging. Um, and and posting a weekly, a weekly blog post on various issues, many of them relating to decline, and getting just a few, uh, a few comments here, mostly very dismissive. But as time went on and predictions based on the reality of, of, of ongoing decline proved true, and predictions based on the claim of Anvil's perpetual progress proved false, I, more and more people are listening.
0: Right.
1: And if you can say, you know, yes, it's going to be rough, you're going to need to make some changes in your lifestyle. We can get through this. Mm-hmm. That that also appeals to Americans because one of the things one, one of the things that I think has gotten gotten misplaced historically, in you know, in in the last oh, probably fifty years or so, most of the people who came here from other parts of the world not not all, of course, there were you know the slaves, for example, but most of the people who came here came here because they were willing to take risks. Right. Most of the people who came here, came here, be, they left their homes behind. They left everything they knew. They they climbed aboard a boat and crossed, crossed the ocean in order to make a new life for themselves in a place they had never been. That takes a certain amount of guts. And appealing to that spirit, appealing to that, okay, you know, here's the challenge. Can you rise to this challenge? That's something that actually works very well to communicate to Americans.
0: Mm-hmm. No, I see that. So, tell me what will this country look like in five years from now
1: um Five years from now, it will look superficially very similar um you'll see the same houses you'll see the same the same buildings um, you'll see probably fewer retail chains we've we've We're way past peak retail um you will see Fewer chains, generally, as things start to break apart into more more local economies, you will see signs of, um, in certain ways, less less abundance, less um, obvious wealth, much less affluence, the the kind of change that we've already seen, where um, instead of you know older teenagers instead of drooling over automobiles, they're riding bicycles now. They're behaving just as stupidly, of course, but that, that's because they're teenagers. But they're being stupid on bikes rather than being stupid in cars. And so various little subtle shifts like that, I expect those to continue over the next five years.
0: You've not been uh, talking about the climate.
1: Um, the, climate is the, the climate is a complex situation. It's much more complex than the various linear claims that have been being made by the media. Um, oh we're definitely seeing climate change. I've seen it in my own life in several places where I lived. Um, we have had, we had three very mild winters here, for example, but the climate is complex and it's not a linear flight to, to imminent collapse. Among other things, one of the basic lessons of ecology is that any environmental change, the ecosystem will seek to balance it out. And so, um, Look sometime into the in, into the the rate at which additional carbon dioxide in the air has been causing explosive growth of um, biomass of plant matter, especially in places like Africa. It's really quite striking, so climate is changing that doesn't mean we're heading for over a cliff, much though um, you know some activists and some politicians would like to claim we are mm-hmm. okay
0: okay. Uh, we are reaching the end of this interview, and as I like to do with back in America, and, uh, and that's going to be easy because we already touched on that. But what is America to you?
1: Um, America to me is a story. It's not actually a place. Um, there, there's, there's a place that more or less like, more, more or less corresponds to it. But America is a story, it's almost a myth. It's, 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 or it's certainly a legend. It's a story that people tell themselves. It's a, a way of looking at the world that may not actually have that much to do with, um, with life on the ground, but it inspires a lot of people and for good and for ill. America's a story and it's a story that can always be retold in different ways. And that's one of the things that makes it interesting to me. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Do you have any books or movie that you would recommend to our
1: listeners? Um, well, all my books. They should, all all <laughs> all of our listeners should run out and buy all of my books. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well. I, mo- movies, I can't, movies I can't help you with. I'm, I am not much into visual media. I don't, I don't, I don't have to own a TV in my adult life. I don't do movies and things like that. They, just, they don't interest me greatly. But um, the, one, the one other advice, other than buying all my books, um, the one other piece of advice I'd encourage um, our listeners to continue is go buy a book by somebody, by somebody who's dead somebody who you've never heard of before. Too many people keep their minds narrowly focused in what's currently being talked about, what's currently being thought. And it's, it's a middle prison. There's a wider world out there. Go read something by dead people.
0: And I think that's what you're doing at the moment, right? You are translating, what is it, a 17th century Latin book?
1: Oh yes, yeah, yeah. This one, one of one of my. I, I do Latin translations the way some people do crosswords. It's a bad habit, I know. But yeah, there was a, there was a Swedish, um, linguist, historian, um, Rosicrucian occultist, general odd type named Johannes Bureus, and he was active in the in the first half of the seventeenth century. And he wrote a book called Adul Runa Revived, which is a a volume on the philosophy and secrets of the runes. Um, and this is like the runes as understood by somebody in 1632. It has never been translated into English. Um, actually, I don't think it's ever come, been taken out of Latin. And it is. It, but there's a lot of people, of course, in, in the United States, among other places, who are very interested in the runes these days.
0: So, and Somewhere what are the favorite. runes? Sorry?
1: Oh, sorry, the runes are, um, that's the old um, Northern European Norse-Swedish-Germanic alphabet made of just kind of straight lines. Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's Dwarf Letters are based on the runes. Probably more people know about those.
0: Okay. Well, this is very niche, right?
1: Uh, Very much so. (laughs) And I have a niche publisher lined up for it. (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) The thing is, most of what I do is niche. I, I'm I'm kind of I'm kind of an eccentric, and I'm good with that. And I work well on the fringes, and it's just a matter of finding, you know, finding other people who are sufficiently interested in this or that bit of bit of fringe activity, that they'll buy my book.
0: Okay, well, John, Michael, Gear, thank you so much for making yourself available for Back in America today.
1: Thank you. I, I've enjoyed being on.